Giving it 110% with Barry Nichols on ABC Grandstand. It's a very good afternoon. Welcome to my show, which is all about sports and sports writing. So that that surrounds sports, essentially. Today, we're going to be hearing from the wife of the late Murray Rose, Jodie Rose, who has written an introduction to a book that Murray wrote before he passed away in 2012, really about his philosophies to life. And there's a bit about his swimming career as well. It's a fascinating read. So Jodie Rose coming up shortly. On the lighter side of things, Billy Birmingham, the infamous 12th man comedian, has a best of collection out. We'll hear from Billy and we'll get his thoughts on the commentary team beyond the golden era of the 80s. And Christus Cholkus, who's an award-winning author, who of course wrote that uh, book, The Slap, which uh, attracted so much attention, has written another one. It's called Barracuda. It has a focus on a champion young swimmer who's got a few problems, so we're going to look at sport in literature. Hope you can stay with us. Conversations on USB Volume 2. It's 20 conversations with some of the most compelling guests from the program. That's 20 hours of stories, revelations, and some secret behind-the-scenes video, all packed into a little USB flash drive. Just plug it into the USB port of your stereo, your computer, or in your car. Ideal for the long drive over the holidays. It's like chocolate for your mind, except it's not bad for you. Conversations on USB Volume 2 in ABC Shops and ABC Shops Online. Look, he was one of the greats. Rose Australia. Before Thorpe, before Phelps, before Spitz, there was Rose. He was a superstar. He was a legend in Australian swimming. Even in world swimming, Murray Rose ranks as one of the greatest. He's known very much in America. His technique was so good and of course he was such a gentleman. He was quietly spoken. Uh, He he was a a really wonderful individual. This was the man who, even as an amateur, would be the benchmark for generations of swimmers to come. It's hard to imagine the impact of this blonde-haired 17-year-old emerging from the waters of Bondi to grab three gold medals in the 1956 Games in his own country. In the 400 metres freestyle, the 1500 metres and as part of the 4x200 relay. Oh, it was amazing, of course. He was a national hero at the time. It was unbelievable. That last voice, Norman May there, but that was from the 7.30 report after Australian Olympic champion Murray Rose had passed away in 2012. Now, Murray had been working on a book when he got sick, uh, and uh, it's a book called Life is Worth Swimming. It is introduced by his wife, Jodie, and it's just come out, and Jodie is with us. Hello, Jodie. Thanks for being with us. Oh, thank you for inviting me on your show. You were married to Murray for 24 years. How? Uh, well, and we were together 26 years. That's right. I want to count every single right, year. Fair enough. But, but we were married for 24. That's right. Remind us of how you met. Well, at that time, I was, I was still doing a fair amount of perfor- uh, performing as I was a ballerina, and I had a massage therapist that was working on my legs, and uh, she had said to me, oh, there's this lovely man, and I think you'll have a lot in common, and then she called him, and one thing led to the next. Uh, we we had a coffee date and never looked back. Yeah, so <laughs> it, was, it was obviously some real chemistry happening straight away. Can you give us a bit of an insight, because we've got an idea of Murray Rose, the, uh, the Olympic champ, and Murray Rose... As the actor and and the guy that came back to Australia, what was he like? As you know, you you would have such a great perspective on what was he like as a yes. Bloke? Well, 
uh, I'd, I'd probably have to tell you, have to spend about two hours telling you that, but I'll make it short. <laughs> he was he uh, he was very Zen-like. He had um, a wonderful um, intensity about him, but he also had the uh, opposite uh, side of the coin, where he was very playful. He. Uh, this way I can describe him at times was he was almost like that wonderful um, sculpture, the bronze sculpture of Rodin, the thinker, yes. in that oftentimes he would spend a long time pondering things that probably most people don't necessarily think about, but that drove him in his life that also uh, helped him in his swimming. So I would say... Uh, Besides all of that, he, he was very complex. He was loving, and I'm, I must have been the luckiest person in the world. What, what about that sense of modesty? Because you're a very humble chap. Oh, where, yes. Where, where did that come from, do you think? Well, I think because he was a reflective person and because he... Um, I think he always demanded more of himself or thought he he could he could do more as not an athlete but as a human being and the whole idea about how he could keep growing and learning he used to make uh jokes saying that well you know really here we are on in life and it's really just like being in kindergarten on the sand it's in the sandbox and we're all learning so I think that he even though he was so grateful and proud to have been able to achieve what he did uh, in terms of uh, his gold medal, giving him a lifetime membership into you know the elite club of Olympians. But as a person, uh, he he could he could very easily balance that instead of just living as as the Olympic star. My guest, Jody Rose, Jody, um, wife of the late Murray Rose. They were together for twenty six years. Uh, we're talking about a book, Life Is Worth Swimming. Uh, Murray Rose wrote it, and um, Jody has introduced the book. Um, Murray was very much a, a guy who could see trends that would happen in the future, wasn't he, in terms of dietary things and also technology. Um, what what were some of the, his philosophies that led him to that? Well, I, I think often, as, as does happen, uh, your family life, when you're very young, helps mould you. And when he um, uh, was first a little baby, his father was quite ill, and his father was a very brilliant man, and I think decided to take it upon himself to totally research how he was going to raise his son and how um, uh, Murray's mother, both mother and father, thought, well, you know, maybe there's another way. Uh, uh, maybe there's a way to have a stronger body or to um, honor the um, natural uh, remedies and practices that uh, are part of a uh, nutrition that was ahead of its time. So he had researched that, and that's when uh, he became a vegetarian. He was a vegetarian up until he was 30, and of course in those days it was, you know, in Australia, this was Pretty. meat and potatoes land, So, as, as it was around the world. And, um, and yet Murray never really knew anything different than that, and uh, then it wasn't until he was about 30 years old that he felt that he had been separated in some way or so different from other people, and he also didn't want to 
just be a vegetarian. He, he wanted to work out what did he feel at the time was the best for his body. So as time went on, he'd introduce a little bit of fish or he'd introduce different proteins based on how, his, how he felt what he needed in terms of nutrition because we both loved eating predominantly vegetarian, but we also didn't live that only. <laughs> Oh, that's kind of a nutshell. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, you've explained it. Well, he, he was an athlete, of course, uh, of incredible success, but he was also in the movies. He was in Ice Station Zebra, for example. How, mm -hmm. how did he come to be involved in Hollywood? Well, when... Um, not long after the Melbourne Olympics, um, he was offered a... a a very um, generous scholarship to the University of Southern California. And, of course, in those days, in Australia, we didn't have the Australian Sport uh, Institute. So he was concerned how he could continue his swimming, um, his, you know, his, his studies and his swimming, and also to plan for the future because in those days, all the athletes put, their families put more money into the sport than the sport was able to provide for them because that was just that era. It was that innocent love of the sport. So off he went, and when he enrolled into university, he found he, he quite loved uh, drama, which he, I, I, he didn't have that much exposure to prior to that. And, uh, and, and he had quite a passion for it, which, and, and of course, with his wonderful Hollywood looks, he was able to um, explore that, uh, that, that sort of creative outlet. What did he get from that? Because as you say, he's a striking, he was a very striking-looking fellow and uh, you know, would be ideally suited for that sort of role. What, what was that creative uh, thing that he got from acting? Uh, he, he was rather, as, 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 as most of us know from the era that he swam in, uh, he, he was a very organic, I'm going to say, swimmer. He really felt the water. So he also had a lot of deep feelings that he could channel into a character or a role. Um, although uh, um, Ride the Wild Surf was a bit of a hoot because this, this was a, a cult classic and that, that was not necessarily showing his dimension as an actor, but it was all a part of the steps that he took. So I, w I would say it was his depth of feeling, deep feelings about things. Jody, you must miss him terribly. What do you miss the most? Everything, <laughs> every everything. Um, well, it, I think it's very hard to put into words what the heart wants to express, or what how I could how I could um, perhaps explain it, other than to say that it's it's like having one foot in the real world and one foot um, not knowing really what to do what to do next, but he was very strong and very accepting and very philosophical, and we both worked together uh, towards, uh, towards his passing, and, and I was able to take care of him at home. He was able to pass away at home, and so I'm passionate also about palliative care because if it wouldn't have been for what they were able to teach me, I wouldn't have been able to serve him in the last few days uh, at, at home, which was a very sacred thing. All that's coupled with it's it's horrible not to have him, and I can't find words to express it, but we were able to walk that end path together in a way that I feel I, I have a strength that has been given a gift, and not everybody can do that. Not, not, not either their loved one can, can have 
um, they might need a lot more intervention, or also some people just can't feel like they can do it. But I, I was very blessed that that's how we could finish our, our passage. Jody, he's returned to Australia. Um, that must have meant a lot to Murray as well. What did he gain from that? Uh, I've got goosebumps when people ask me that because, um, uh, well, the first trip that I came with him to Australia was in 1986. and So I had fallen in love with him, but, of course, I also fell in love with the country. And from day one, when we were together, he I, I knew that he always missed Australia uh, his mother was living up in the Hollywood Hills, and he being an only child, he was still needing to take care of his mother for most of his life. And um, But every time he would come back to uh, Australia, once or twice a year for, for commentating or business, he was more himself. There was something more Murray about Murray. And um, and uh, and he the fact that he was able that we were able to come here and that he was able to see his 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 last chapter here was he was so grateful he was just really grateful. Jody, it's been a, a real pleasure. Good luck with the book, and thank you very much for sharing you. some of your your insights. Thank you so much. Jody Rose, there. The book is called Life Is Worth Swimming, and there's a terrific. Edition of Australian Story, there's a two-parter that was on as well that uh, you can actually find online. This is 110% with Barry Nichols on ABC Grandstand. Well, it was back in uh, 1984, I reckon. I was playing a bit of league cricket over in England and I kept hearing word of this terrific new comedy about the Australian commentary cricket team, a cricket commentary team with Richie Benno, Bill Laurie, Tony Gregg. Anyway, eventually... Someone sent me a tape, and it was the first, I think it was the first, of the Billy Birminghams. Well, Billy has released uh, a best of. It's called Willy Nilly, the 12th man's biggest hits, and he's with us. Hello, Billy. Hey, how you doing, Barry? Was that, is that right? The first one came out in about 84? Yes, indeed it was. 1984 was, uh, back in that day, they used to call it an EP or an extended play single. And, um, yeah, that was my first attempt at doing Richie Benno, Bill Laurie and uh, Tony Gregg and co. And uh, can you believe that's coming up for 30 years? I know. Back? I know. Isn't, yes. isn't that extraordinary? And it was delivered to me, of course, yeah, on a tape, a cassette tape, which is... Uh, unheard of today. Well, I can. That's why I can always tell uh, who's a, who's a really big fan or goes back a long way because they say, "Billy, I love all your tapes, mate. When are you doing another tape?" And I have to point out to them that you can no longer you can no longer buy a tape. Although you know, a funny story, Barry. Uh, when when cassettes really were phased out and virtually no one was making them, everything was a uh, uh, CD. They kept a cassette machine still going in the factory, a cassette manufacturing machine, for me and Slim Dusty. Is that right? <laughs> yep. Because Slim's, Slim's fans all used to listen to the tapes in the truck, and, uh, and my fans, I don't know what it is, maybe it's just that the 12th Man was a real travelling piece. You know, you can listen to it in the car and, and avoid mum or the kids hearing the fruity language. Well, now that you say that, I, th I think the last one that you brought out must have been in 2009 because I was, I was travelling 
Well, that was one of your preceding ones because yep. I, when I came to work in Western Australia, I actually caught the GAN up to Catherine, up to Catherine from Alice oh, yeah. Springs, and then drove down. And yes, it was whatever version that I was listening to. But it's a real seriously, mate. That's the real common thread over the last thirty years: is people on the road, um, uh, you know, listening to the twelfth man gets them on a long car journey or a long plane ride. Um, a lot of bands, a lot of musicians uh, have. Uh, you know, back, backlogs of 12 men in the car for their long journeys between gigs. So um, oh, I like that. I like the fact that I'm a companion, especially for a lot of expats, you know, like you were. You were over in the UK yeah. when you first heard it, and a lot of people, it makes them, it's a, you know, cures homesickness hearing a bit of 12 men yeah. when you're overseas. It does. And, um, yeah, I mean, you may not, well, you probably uh, are now aware, but at the time I don't suppose you were probably aware of just how successful it was. Can you um, Can you take us back to the... The very first edition, uh, what was the spark to get this up and running? Well, just the, the Packer Revolution really did drag hundreds of thousands of us back to the game of cricket. Um, you know, the game was in the doldrums when I left school in 1970, and, you know, right through most of the 70s, the game was really not top of mind. Certainly the TV coverage wasn't. And then uh, when Kerry Packer and Richie Benno and uh, Tony Gregg and all those others who were involved uh, under much uh, criticism at the time, um, they were sort of revolutionising the game and um, uh, I think they did cricket, the cricket world uh, lots of favours. But when it came on in 1978, I was sitting there watching it because I knew Richie Benno was a famous Australian cricketer and hero. But I had no idea about that voice, Barry. I had no idea that Mr. Benno had this most unusual voice. And uh, the bottom lip, it's got a mind of its own. And uh, he had the permanent suntan. I don't think he'd seen a winter in about oh, 50 years. And uh, so I was not only enjoying this new form of the game and the new presentation under lights and cameras everywhere, but I was also very much enjoying Mr. Benno's voice. And then right alongside him, yeah, you got Bill Laurie, go on, got him, yes, oh, Australia, right on top of you. And, uh, you know, Bill nearly blew an O-ring every time there was a wicket fell. And, uh, and then Tony Gregg, of course, everything was just hard and fast. And Glenn McGraw uh, really has mastered the art of fast bowling in the last year and a half. And I just, so someone with a, a penchant or a penchant for uh, taking the mickey out of voices, uh, these guys <laughs> were manna from heaven for me. <laughs> Look, the voice you're hearing... Well, you're hearing a number of voices, but uh, the actual real voice is uh, Billy Birmingham. He's got his latest uh, collection. It is willy-nilly the 12th man's biggest hits that's come out. Yes. Uh, and we're reminiscing, uh, as you say, it's a long time ago now when it first came yeah. out. Um, did, did you hear from Kerry Packer when it came out? Because you would have also been a godsend for them, I imagine. Well, there was there were um, some people in the commentary team and Channel Nine get the twelfth man joke better than others. Is probably the most diplomatic way to put it. Um, Tony Gregg, rest his soul, was a big twelfth man fan. Tony got the joke very early, but as he knew, he knew instantly. 
that the 12th man success was having a nice positive knock-on effect for Channel 9's coverage and the commentary team. It was giving them almost sort of cult status um, because, you know, so many of my expressions on the 12th man records ended up kind of enter entering the vernacular. And um, I remember one of my greatest faux pas, though, was... Tony Gregg, who, as I said, I formed quite a good relationship with, and he said to me one day on the phone uh, about a, a record that I'd just released, he said, I played, uh, I played the new record to Kerry in the car. And I said, Kerry, who? <laughs> I don't know why. I must have been thinking it was his wife or somebody. And um, and I, I honestly said, talk about a great faux pas. I said, Kerry, who? And he said, and, and, and he said, Packer. And I said, oh, great, great. What did uh, what did KP think of it? He said, oh, he lost his ass off. He thought it was great. <laughs> <laughs> so he's got the uh, you know the, the best endorsement. It's like Caesar news coming down from Caesar. It's okay. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I used to see Kerry um, in Double Bay in Sydney. He would often sit at the same table having coffee or whatever with the lovely uh, lemon-coloured mohair jumper tied in devil-may-care fashion around the shoulders. And I'd walk past him and I just thought, God, I wish, I wish I had the guts to go and tap him on the shoulder and say, Kerry, Billy Birmingham, the 12th man, thanks for putting the kids through school. <laughs> <laughs> what, what has been the joy for you in all of this over these three or more decades, almost three decades? Making people laugh. Um, it's, uh, it's a painful process when I'm doing the records because I'm just one of those tortured souls who's kind of riddled with self-doubt when I'm actually doing the records and I'm writing them and I'm recording them and I'm mixing them and I'm putting in all the sound effects, sound effects. And, uh, you know, as I said, I'm usually riddled with self-doubt and the fact that they have all worked so well and the fact that the the fans, the punters, are always so keen to engage me in conversation uh, because I don't do any live work, Barry, and I never have. So <clears throat> the fact that the punters, they'll see me at a pub and they'll come and go, go, Billy, how are you going, mate? Marvellous effort, that, really super stuff and two for 22 and I notice you're wearing the cream, the band, the white, the off-white and uh, so they start throwing all these 12 manisms at me and then I start throwing a couple back at them and then I'm walking across the street and someone will yell out Billy got him yes you know and they all so I've got this great sort of uh, ongoing repartee that I have with uh, with 12th man fans over the years and you know they're very they're very quick their, their affection for my stuff is very organic so um, it's been a it's been a joy making people laugh for 30 years do you dare go to the cricket you would spend your whole day imagining engaging in banter yeah exactly I, I do avoid it I must admit for that reason unless I can get ushered into a private box somewhere if I'm just sitting out in the bleachers um, it does get a bit difficult at times I tried <laughs> I tried it a couple of years ago and uh, it ended up with everyone just commentating in my ear but uh, or yelling out for me to commentate. What about the current day crop? Could oh. you work with them at all? No, God. I mean, when I see them up there on Sunday, Barry, I'm going to say, look, can somebody just develop a lisp or a stutter or something? Because you all sound the same. You know, everyone just sounds like the one voice. You know, you got your slats and your heelys and tubbies and warnies and James Brayshaw. 
they they just don't have anything about their style or like whether it's their vocal style or their idiosyncrasies of their commentary style. I really have uh, a lot of trouble finding anything to latch onto with any of those guys. I'm not saying they're bad commentators. I'm just saying they don't have anything larger than life that I can grab hold of. Billy, look, I'm rest assured that your uh, Christmas card from Bill, Bill Laurie is on its way. Uh, <laughs> oh, unbelievable. Willy nilly. Oh, the 12th man's biggest hits. I've got it, yes! <laughs> Billy Birmingham, thanks a lot for speaking with us. Thanks, Barry. Take it easy, mate. This is 110% with Barry Nichols on ABC Grandstand. Today, we're going to look at what happens when a sporting dream becomes too important, when your whole sense of being relies on how you perform. And how do you value yourself as a human being when it's all over, or indeed, if you fail? My next guest, uh, Christos Cholkis, uh, fresh from the mega success of The Slap, has written a novel. It's called Barracuda that deals with this theme and other. Christos, great to chat again. Uh, yes, it's good to be back on air. The story that you've written is about a swimmer. But first of all, tell us about your own connection with, with the water. I'm a swimmer myself, uh, very, very, very far from uh, a champion swimmer. Um, I've just, uh, I've, from uh, a little boy, uh, the water, uh, I just felt at home, you know, to, to be honest. Um, and because I wanted to write a book about an athlete, it just seemed absolutely right that I make him a swimmer because I could draw on my own experience of what it is to be in the water, what it is to, to swim. And also uh, because part of the book is about uh, a, a, a boy who loses himself um, because he has invested so strongly in a dream and that it's um, he doesn't know how to find belonging and um, he, he, he does again and in, in a sense water for me in Australia that's that's where I feel at home in Australia is in the water <laughs> so did you have to go back to the water as, as almost like a lap swimmer to try and get a sense of you know why this uh, this key character was identifying so much with this pursuit of swimming glory. Look, um, I, I became fascinated with the idea of writing um, of writing this book, to, uh, writing this story, because um, I'd uh, I'd had a, as you, you, you indicated um, uh, a very big success with the previous novel, um, but uh, it was the success was something I feel very, very fortunate about with the, with a slap, but it also was a little bit disorientating. It was a little, I just wasn't sure what to, to do next. And I remember just watching a lot of athletes and particular swimmers and, and, and almost envying, um, the, that, that drive and that, the way they could lose themselves in the, in, in the activity of, you know, being in the water and also what I've, what I've been calling the cleanness of their achievement. You know, you're the first one across the line. You know, you're the fastest person in that pool. You'd never quite have that security as a, as a, as a, as a writer, as an artist, but I knew it would be boring to, to write a story about a, a, a writer going through that. Um, I thought there was something rich in, in, in making him a swimmer. So this whole like this meditative thing of swimming, but also the very black and white thing of success. Yes, I have succeeded here. Uh, there's a very clear line there. Danny Kelly is the main character. T- tell us about him. He's a 14-year-old kid whose parents, his father's a truck driver. His father um, is is Neil, and his mother is Stephanie. He's a hairdresser. They're they're working class people. He goes he's he goes to a a, a working class school, uh, state school in Melbourne. And but because he's got this phenomenal uh, gift. Um, he wins a scholarship to one of the elite schools, and um, and I I was really that's the story I wanted to tell that story of what happens when you um 
you be, you know you're taken from one class from one world from one background and suddenly are in a very very different world with very very different people what that does to your sense of who you are and how that can sometimes cut you off from the most important people in your life including your family um that really is the story of of barracuda the um uh, even more important than than, than the swimming What's it like? Because I mean, we haven't had that many novels, and you're saying there that you know the the, the sport is secondary in a, in a sense. But we haven't had many novels that use sport as a major backdrop. Any ideas? As a guy who's had a lot of success as a novelist, any ideas why? I think it's actually really peculiar because you know Australia as a nation is you know we sport is so obsessional in this country, and also you know we've been um, we put so much expectation on sports people who are you know they're really really young uh these are these are young girls and and boys and we we all our national expectations all our kind of our pride goes into into what they're doing and it's terrible when they fail because we don't like failure here and i don't know if we treat them we treat them very well why it hasn't been more of a subject for for writers i really don't understand i remember when i was young there was um a, a fantastic british novel called the loneliness of a long distance runner which was about sporting achievement and um and it said so much about uh, dreams and aspiration and hopes and, and failure and success and it just seems to me that we could do more with that subject given that sports is so important here. Having said that, I mean I think um, you know some, some of uh, Robert Drew's work has been excellent in kind of ex- examining something about the Australian national character through, through sports. I just wish we were doing more. Yeah. It, it seemed to me such a rich subject to, uh, to, 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 to use as a, a kind of background for Danny. Is, is it too low for highbrow? Is that a, a, perhaps an attitude that a, a many writers would have about the usage of sport? You know, I think maybe there's a... I think maybe that there is... I, uh, hopefully it's changing now. Um, but I remember when I was young in um, in schools in a way, uh, you know, so I'm talking about I was in high school in the late 70s, early 80s. There was... There really was this sense, at least for the... Um, it seemed to me that you either had to choose books or sports... <laughs> You couldn't do one or the other, um, and I, I mean that's that, that's false. I think you can certainly do you can certainly do both. But maybe there's an element of that that idea that sports isn't really um, isn't really a legitimate um, uh, subject for highbrow literature. I think that's really false because um, uh, one of the great uh, and again this is an English novel, but one of the great books of the last ten years I think is um, David Peace's The The Damned United. Christus Cholkus there about Barracuda and that is your lot for today don't forget you can find us at 110% with Barry Nichols search it put it in your search engine or indeed you can find us on the ABC Grandstand site I hope you enjoyed the show and look forward to chatting with you next time have a good one